Section 38 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2. Chapter 1. Part 2. By all accounts, his powers of conversation were very great, and his manners in every respect very agreeable. That this must have been the case is obvious from the great number of his friends, and the zeal and ardour with which they continued to serve him, notwithstanding the obloquy under which he lay, and even the danger that might be incurred by appearing to befriend him. As for his moral character, even his worst enemies have been obliged to allow that it was unexceptionable. Many of my readers will perhaps smile when I say that he was not only a sincere but a zealous Christian, and would willingly have died a martyr to the cause. Yet I think the fact is of easy proof, and his conduct through life, and especially at his death, affords irrefragable proofs of it. His tenets, indeed, did not coincide with those of the majority of his countrymen, but though he rejected many of the doctrines, he admitted the whole of the sublime morality and the divine origin of the Christian religion, which may charitably be deemed sufficient to constitute a true Christian. Of vanity he seems to have possessed rather more than a usual share, but perhaps he was deficient in pride. His writings were exceedingly numerous, and treated of science, theology, metaphysics, and politics. Of his theological, metaphysical, and political writings, it is not our business in this work to take any notice. His scientific works treat of electricity, optics, and chemistry. As an electrician, he was respectable. As an optician, a compiler, as a chemist, a discoverer. He wrote also a book on perspective, which I have never had an opportunity of perusing. It is to his chemical labours that he is chiefly indebted for the great reputation which he acquired. No man ever entered upon any undertaking with less apparent means of success than Dr. Priestley did on the chemical investigation of airs. He was unacquainted with chemistry, excepting that he had, some years before, attended an elementary course delivered by Mr. Turner of Liverpool. He was not in possession of any apparatus, nor acquainted with the method of making chemical experiments, and his circumstances were such that he could neither lay out a great deal of money on experiments, nor could he hope, without a great deal of expense, to make any material progress in his investigations. These circumstances, which at first sight seem so adverse, were, I believe, of considerable service to him, and contributed very much to his ultimate success. The branch of chemistry which he selected was new. An apparatus was to be invented before anything of importance could be effected, and as simplicity is essential in every apparatus, he was most likely to contrive the best whose circumstances obliged him to attend to economical considerations. Pneumatic chemistry had been begun by Mr. Cavendish in his valuable paper on carbonic acid and hydrogen gases, published in the Philosophical Transactions for 1766. 
The apparatus which he employed was similar to that used about a century before by Dr. Mayo of Oxford. Dr. Priestley contrived the apparatus still used by chemists in pneumatic investigations. It is greatly superior to that of Mr. Cavendish, and indeed as convenient as can be desired. Were we indebted to him for nothing else than this apparatus, it would deservedly give him high consideration as a pneumatic chemist. His discoveries in pneumatic chemistry are so numerous that I must satisfy myself with a bare outline. To enumerate everything would be to transcribe his three volumes, into which he digested his discoveries. His first paper was published in 1772, and was on the method of impregnating water with carbonic acid gas. The experiments contained in it were the consequence of his residing near a brewery in Leeds. This pamphlet was immediately translated into French, and at a meeting of the College of Physicians in London, they addressed the Lords of the Treasury, pointing out the advantage that might result from water impregnated with carbonic acid gas in cases of scurvy at sea. His next essay was published in the Philosophical Transactions, and procured him the Coplian Medal. His different volumes on air were published in succession, while he lived with Lord Shelburne, and while he was settled at Birmingham. They drew the attention of all Europe, and raised the reputation of this country to a great height. The first of his discoveries was nitrous gas, now called deutoxide of azote, which had indeed been formed by Dr. Hales, but that philosopher had not attempted to investigate its properties. Dr. Priestley ascertained its properties with much sagacity, and almost immediately applied it to the analysis of air. It contributed very much to all subsequent investigations in pneumatic chemistry, and may be said to have led to our present knowledge of the constitution of the atmosphere. The next great discovery was oxygen gas, which was made by him on the 1st of August, 1774, by heating the red oxide of mercury and collecting the gaseous matter given out by it. He almost immediately detected the remarkable property which this gas has of supporting combustion better and animal life longer than the same volume of common air, and likewise the property which it has of condensing into red fumes when mixed with nitrous gas. Lavoisier likewise laid claim to the discovery of oxygen gas, but his claim is entitled to no attention whatever as Dr. Priestley informs us that he prepared this gas in M. Lavoisier's house in Paris, and showed him the method of procuring it in the year 1774, which is a considerable time before the date assigned by Lavoisier for his pretended discovery. Scheele, however, actually obtained this gas without any previous knowledge of what Priestley had done, but the book containing this discovery was not published till three years after Priestley's process had become known to the public. Dr. Priestley first made known sulfurous acid, fluosilicic acid, muriatic acid, and ammonia in the gaseous form, and pointed out easy methods of procuring them. He describes with exactness the most remarkable properties of each. He likewise pointed out the existence of carburetted hydrogen gas, though he made but few experiments to determine its nature. His discovery of protoxide of azote affords a beautiful example of the advantages resulting from his method of investigation, 
and the sagacity which enabled him to follow out any remarkable appearances which occurred. Carbonic oxide gas was discovered by him while in America, and it was brought forward by him as an incontrovertible refutation of the antiphlogistic theory. Though he was not strictly the discoverer of hydrogen gas, yet his experiments on it were highly interesting, and contributed essentially to the revolution which chemistry soon after underwent. Nothing, for example, could be more striking than the reduction of oxide of iron and the disappearance of the hydrogen when the oxide is heated sufficiently in contact with hydrogen gas. Azotic gas was known before he began his career, but we are indebted to him for most of the properties of it yet known. To him also we owe the knowledge of the fact that an acid is formed when electric sparks are made to pass for some time through a given bulk of common air a fact which led afterwards to Mr. Cavendish's great discovery of the composition of nitric acid. He first discovered the great increase of bulk which takes place when electric sparks are made to pass through ammoniacal gas, a fact which led Berthollet to the analysis of this gas. He merely repeated Priestley's experiment, determined the augmentation of bulk and the nature of the gases evolved by the action of the electricity. His experiments on the amelioration of atmospherical air by the vegetation of plants, on the oxygen gas given out by their leaves, and on the respiration of animals, are not less curious and interesting. Such is a short view of the most material facts for which chemistry is indebted to Dr. Priestley. As a discoverer of new substances, his name must always stand very high in the science but as a reasoner or theorist, his position will not be so favourable. It will be observed that almost all his researches and discoveries related to gaseous bodies. He determined the different processes by means of which the different gases can be procured, the substances which yield them, and the effects which they are capable of producing on other bodies. Of the other departments of chemistry, he could hardly be said to know anything. As a pneumatic chemist, he stands high. As an analytical chemist, he can scarcely claim any rank whatever. In his famous experiments on the formation of water by detonating mixtures of oxygen and hydrogen in a copper globe, the copper was found acted upon, and a blue liquid was obtained, the nature of which he was unable to ascertain. But Mr. Keir, whose assistance he solicited, determined it to be a solution of nitrate of copper in water. This formation of nitric acid induced him to deny that water was a compound of oxygen and hydrogen. The same acid was formed in the experiments of Mr. Cavendish, but he investigated the circumstances of the formation and showed that it depended upon the presence of azotic gas in the gaseous mixture. Whenever azotic gas is present, nitric acid is formed and the quantity of this acid depends upon the relative proportion of the azotic and hydrogen gases in the mixture. When no hydrogen gas is present, nothing is formed but nitric acid. When no azotic gas is present, nothing is formed but water. These facts, determined by Cavendish, invalidate the reasoning of Priestley altogether, and had he possessed the skill, like Cavendish, to determine with sufficient accuracy the proportions of the different gases in his mixtures, 
and the relative quantities of nitric acid formed, he would have seen the inaccuracy of his own conclusions. He was a firm believer in the existence of phlogiston, but he seems at least ultimately to have adopted the view of Scheele and many other eminent contemporary chemists, indeed the view of Cavendish himself, that hydrogen gas is phlogiston in a separate and pure state. Common air he considered as a compound of oxygen and phlogiston. Oxygen, in his opinion, was air quite free from phlogiston, or air in a simple and pure state, while azotic gas, the other constituent of common air, was air saturated with phlogiston. Hence he called oxygen dephlogisticated and azote phlogisticated air. The facts that when common air is converted into azotic gas its bulk is diminished about one-fifth part, and that azotic gas is lighter than common air or oxygen gas, though not quite unknown to him, do not seem to have drawn much of his attention. He was not accustomed to use a balance in his experiments, nor to attend much to the alterations which took place in the weight of bodies. Had he done so, most of his theoretical opinions would have fallen to the ground. When a body is allowed to burn in a given quantity of common air, it is known that the quality of the common air is deteriorated. It becomes, in his language, more phlogisticated. This, in his opinion, was owing to an affinity which existed between phlogiston and air. The presence of air is necessary to combustion, in consequence of the affinity which it has for phlogiston. It draws phlogiston out of the burning body in order to combine with it. When a given bulk of air is saturated with phlogiston, it is converted into azotic gas, or phlogisticated air, as he called it. And this air, having no longer any affinity for phlogiston, can no longer attract that principle, and consequently combustion cannot go on in such air. All combustible bodies, in his opinion, contain hydrogen. Of course, the metals contain it as a constituent. The calces of metals are those bodies deprived of phlogiston. To prove the truth of this opinion, he showed that when the oxide of iron is heated in hydrogen gas, that gas is absorbed while the calx is reduced to the metallic state. Finery cinder, which he employed in these experiments, is, in his opinion, iron not quite free from phlogiston. Hence, it still retains a quantity of hydrogen. To prove this, he mixed together finery cinder and carbonates of lime, barytes, and strontian, and exposed the mixture to a strong heat, and by this process obtained inflammable gas in abundance. In his opinion, every inflammable gas contains hydrogen in abundance. Hence, this experiment was adduced by him as a demonstration that hydrogen is a constituent of finery cinder. All these processes of reasoning, which appear so plausible as Dr. Priestley states them, vanish into nothing when his experiments are made and the weights of everything determined by means of a balance. It is then established that a burning body becomes heavier during its combustion and that the surrounding air loses just as much weight as the burning body gains. Scheele and Lavoisier showed clearly that the loss of weight sustained by the air is owing to a quantity of oxygen absorbed from it and condensed in the burning body. 
Cruikshank first elucidated the nature of the inflammable gas produced by the heating of a mixture of finery cinder and carbonate of lime, or other earthy carbonate. He found that iron filings would answer better than finery cinder. The gas was found to contain no hydrogen, and to be, in fact, a compound of oxygen and carbon. It was shown to be derived from the carbonic acid of the earthy carbonate, which was deprived of half its oxygen by the iron filings or finery cinder. Thus altered, it no longer preserved its affinity for the lime, but made its escape in the gaseous form, constituting the gas now known by the name of carbonic oxide. Though the consequence of the Birmingham riots, which obliged Dr. Priestley to leave England and repair to America, is deeply to be lamented, as fixing an indelible disgrace upon the country, perhaps it was not in reality so injurious to Dr. Priestley as may at first sight appear. He had carried his peculiar researches nearly as far as they could go, to arrange and methodize and deduce from them the legitimate consequences, required the application of a different branch of chemical science, which he had not cultivated, and which his characteristic rapidity and the time of life to which he had arrived would have rendered it almost impossible for him to acquire. In all probability, therefore, had he been allowed to prosecute his researches unmolested, his reputation, instead of an increase, might have suffered a diminution and he might have lost that eminent situation as a man of science, which he had so long occupied. With Dr. Priestley closes this period of the history of British chemistry. For Mr. Cavendish, though he had not lost his activity, had abandoned that branch of science and turned his attention to other pursuits. The End of Section 38